Have you ever felt trapped in a job and you're only doing it because you feel you should? What has influenced me to choose the career path I do? What are the messages I tell myself or other people tell me when I look to change? Oh gosh, I'm 30, I've got a mortgage, I ought to be settled down in, well, I've been doing accountancy for a while, even though you may not like it. Well, do you really want to be doing that for another 30 years? So ask yourself first the questions, what comes up when I dare to think about changing? There's some ridiculous percentage of people that really do not like going to work. It's like eight or nine people out of 10 do not like going to work. What a a total waste of one's creative capacity and, and how it influences people. You have reached Escape the 9 to 5. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi there. I'm doing a boring day job and finding life sucks. Stuck in a 9 to 5 job and looking for something different? Escape the 9 to 5 is your guide to freedom. My name is Steve O'Ealy and my mission is to help you on your own career change journey. I chat with successful professionals who've either taken the leap themselves or have always done work differently. They share stories so that you can learn from their mistakes and benefit from their successes. Escape the 9 to 5 and join us on our journey to a more enjoyable life. Have you ever been told you should get a qualification and should get a solid job and should buy a house and should get married? And yet, people are drowning in college debt. One in three people consider their jobs meaningless. People become trapped in their jobs to pay for mortgages. And last I heard, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Are you sick of being told this is how you should do things? You've gotten into this position because you've always taken the advice of other people. Your parents probably told you to get some training behind you, get a solid job, maybe even a mortgage, and then you'll be happy. I'm Steve O'Ealy, providing you with an episode-by-episode guide to escaping the 9-to-5 while learning from people who've successfully done it. In our second episode, that person is organizational psychologist Claire Mann. She's identified myths we tell ourselves we should do and how you can get rid of these and spend more time doing things you actually want to. She encourages you to remove the excuses and come up with your best version of your life if you knew you could not fail. She also untangles all the myths we tell ourselves that get in the way. Finally, I'll give you a take-home challenge to help you on your journey out of the 9 to 5. I joined the conversation explaining to Claire why I started the podcast. The inspiration for the podcast was actually talking to so many of my friends And every second person that I talked to said, oh, you know, I've done this degree and I've been working in this industry for three or four years and Mm -hmm. and not happy and don't know what to do with my life. And I I think people feel a little bit trapped potentially because if you're not happy when you're 21, you sort of feel like, oh, well, I'll study something else or I'll do something completely different. But when you're in your late 20s or early 30s, potentially there might be a mortgage there or other commitments that mean you can't necessarily change. Yes. For our listeners, can you just give us a bit of a background as to who you are and what you do? I'm Claire Mann, of course, and I've been a psychologist actually for about 30 years. But I I started off as an organisational psychologist. But that wasn't till I was about 25, 26. I, I left school at 16, actually, and was heading for the banking career. And I found out very early on that that was not for me, that more pedestrian life. And and after about five or six years, I knew I was more of a people person. So luckily I had some good people around me that influenced me to make those changes. So Ken ended up with organizational psychology and working in organizations, and then later on moved into more direct work 
coaching and then more sort of counseling psychology and around the communication piece. And I've written and spoken a lot about the choices we have where we deny we have choice or we can't even see where they're available. So that's where I sort of find myself encouraging people to live their best life, I guess. And I think it's very appropriate that we mention your book, which is Myths of Choice. I just remember it really hitting home and being quite resounding as to the message that we're trying to portray in the podcast. So can you give our listeners a bit of a, I guess, summary of the book? Well, it really aligns with really what you are doing with the podcast, because as we know, there's some ridiculous percentage of people that really do not like going to work. It's like eight or nine people out of 10 do not like going to work. What a, a total waste of one's creative capacity and and how it influences people being depressed most of the time. So I wrote this book, um, it actually only came out a couple of years ago, but I realized very early on in my life that there are a lot of shoulds, a lot of oughts, a lot of musts, which come out of our culture, of course, our socialization with our parents. And we hear it all the time. I should sort of go and travel around the world, have a great time because later I won't be able to do it. Well, who decided it all gets cut off at 25, you know, and I ought to save money because I'll forever be renting. And that's a terrible thing. Not always. I must study hard and get something behind me. All these are little cliches, aren't they? Or, you know, I should go and visit my mother-in-law because that's what good people <laughs> do. I must go home for Christmas. <laughs> we know that one. It's funny you mentioned the, the shoulds thing is because I actually grew up in a pretty conservative South African household and my old man's a, a teacher and very much of the mentality is this is what you must do. This is what you should do. You know, you should get a degree and you should go and get a solid job and you should buy a house and all that sort of thing and uh, people have different upbringings but I think there does tend to be a bit of commonality there in terms of people who end up I'm not saying necessarily a degree you might have done a building apprenticeship but you should get this behind yeah, you that's right even if it's not what you want to do that's right it's uh, you ought to get something behind you you must you should and whenever we hear those three words to me they're like the red sort of flag sort of thing they really are telling us there's a myth uh, the way I talk about this is a myth is an unquestioned assumption this is what we always done it was good enough for your father and his father before him and all that sort of nonsense we hear or you're oh you've had lots of partners you can't be a person who commits you know this sort of interpretation of our reality and so I wanted to make it really easy for people by dividing it into a different number of myths and I've identified eight that seem to operate in our world but I'll tell you when I first came across this it's always a little backstory isn't it to all our sort of interest no doubt why you're doing the podcast and I remember I must have been about eight years old and I don't think it's a romantic story because my mother kind of validated it and I remember there was always a family sort of chuckle that used to happen and my mum used to say to my dad hey Vic do you want tea or coffee and he'll said I'll have the same as you dear and my mum, depending on whether she just wanted to make him the same drink, would say, oh, come on, Vic, you know, do you, what do you want? Tea? No, I'm not going to choose. He'd go and this sort of thing. And then she'd be, you know, she was on a, a bit of an argument the night before, in good spirit, I guess. She'd say, oh, I'm having a gin and tonic. You know, it's nine o'clock in the morning. And you don't have to be sarcastic. <laughs> and it was all this sort of, but my father would not choose. And I remember looking up and hearing my father say, Gabrielle, I am not going to choose. Obviously, I've thought about it a lot since, but I remember having these very philosophical discussions with my mother, but I suddenly realized he wasn't not choosing. He was choosing not to choose. 
I got really interested in is, you know, we try to relinquish responsibility for our choices, our lives, our career options, our partners, whether we have children or not, to someone else or to something else like our culture or stage in life or gender or something. And I suddenly realized my dad was relinquishing responsibility when he was still choosing. And I got really interested in a philosophy called existential philosophy, what it is to exist. And that gave notion to all this notions of choice and where we deny we've got choice or we can't even see it's available. So the myths of choice identifies eight different myths, the group myth, the identity myth, morality, selfishness myth, commitment myth, dishonesty, all of these that where we have an assumption that this is what things mean and this is what we think things should do. So if we have a, a belief, for instance, a myth that if people really care about you, they'd never forget your birthday. When someone forgets our birthday, which is just a day, and it may not be important to them, we put a huge significance on that. And they're not really my friend. They don't care. When in fact, it just might not be important to them. So the book is to try and get us to look at where, particularly when we look at the nine to five, and we start to say, what has influenced me to choose the career path I do? What are the messages I tell myself or other people tell me when I look to change? oh gosh, I'm 30, I've got a mortgage, I ought to be settled down in, well, I've been doing accountancy for a while, even though you may not like it, is, well, do you really want to be doing that for another 30 years? So ask yourself first the questions, what is comes up when I dare to think about changing? Where does that come from? Sometimes it may be negligent to walk out of that job immediately before securing something else, and it might reduce your options, you might be out on your ear and nowhere to live. But it's usually assumptions that comes from other people or our own fears. But given that eight or nine people out of 10 don't like going to work, we don't want to be that statistic because life is both too short and too long. You know, that's really fascinating. In terms of the not only dispelling the myths, do you provide any sort of suggestions for what people can do because I guess for some people in particular, they've always lived by those myths. This is what I should do. And potentially you've been saying these things for years. And then someone goes and tells you, actually, hang on, that's just something our society has been telling us for the last 200 years. I mean, like university probably didn't exist or barely existed. <laughs> I know universities existed for longer than a couple of hundred years. But for most people, university wasn't an option until really the last 50 to 100 years. Yeah. So the notion that you should go to university is actually a very recent one. And so for people that have always lived by something like that, yeah. say I should go to university or I should get a solid job or I should get a mortgage, yeah. what advice would you have to them in terms of rethinking those myths and sort of creating a new path for themselves going forward? Yeah. Well, it's one of the things, one of the chapters is the myth that you can't change. <laughs> because, <laughs> it, but it's being realistic, the fact that when we come to think about change, say it's ending a relationship, you know, and you've been in the relationship a long time, and we try to think about that, or we, we've been in a job a long time, we have responsibilities, we talk our way out of it. I've got responsibilities, my children are at a certain school, you know, my partner wouldn't like it, is it's going through a process to identify, you know, I, I get people to picture that they're in a bit of a box, okay, and you're trying to get out of the box. <laughs> and it's really identifying the problem is when we break things down, often the problem isn't as big. It seems so insurmountable. It's, I, I say take a large sheet of paper and write down exactly how you're spending your time, your 168 hours per week. So instead of going 
I just want to look at that career. Look at how you spend your life. And then once you break it down, you start to look at how much is you've been told you've got to do. Got to visit the in-laws. I should go to the gym, even though I really would prefer to do some gardening. But we go to the gym because that's our cultural expectation at the moment. So how, what, how do you spend your time? Dividing them into enjoyable, unenjoyable and indifferent, positive or negative, active or reactive. Are you choosing them or letting someone else do this? And I get people to actually work through what they do with their time. And a big chunk of that is going to be work. So it's looking at asking a really big question. I want you to imagine, and everybody can do this exercise, you have all the money in the world. You, and it's not just your money, but you can call on other people's money. So people will invest in your projects. You've got all the confidence, all the contacts, all the um, health, all the energy, all the time and other people's time. So in other words, you have no excuses. And I say to people, what would you begin to do right now if you knew you could not fail? And most people go, but they made you to put the limits on. There's the myths, you say. Uh, yeah, well, what I would do, I'd go and do this job. Well, maybe you don't want to do a job. Maybe you could just do a job for two hours a week and get other people. What is the outcome of the job you want? Well, I like being around really cool people. I like being a bit creative. Well, you don't have to have a job for that. Remember, you, you're the master of the universe here. You've, you've got no limitations. If you can do it without censorship, don't worry how you're going to get it is it gives you an idea of the sort of area that your compass needs to be directing in. So if someone says, honestly, I'd probably go and do voluntary work in India looking after orphan kids, there's something there for you. Or I'm passionate about animals, they might say. I want to work in a sanctuary. Okay, well, that's... And rarely do people, when people say, well, actually, I would be doing what I'm doing now. I actually would say I'm doing what I'm doing now. To me, it's although I work very hard, it's a bit like a hobby, really, because getting people to talk about how to have enjoyable, authentic, meaningful lives and the honour that people tell me about their lives, that's really cool. So I'm definitely glad I left banking and actually went and did this because it was, uh, I think I would be very distressed if not. <laughs> the point you're making in terms of removing those limitations and I find a lot of people when you honestly ask them they've maybe had a couple of drinks and you honestly ask them what would you want to do with your life most people say things that are actually very realistic i don't think most people want to become you know if, if i had all those limitations removed i don't have any interest in being the world's most famous actor i mean don't get me wrong i'd love to be the world's um best sports person but um <laughs> that is one example where the ship has sailed but um in most cases, most I think most people's kind of ideas of what they want to do with work are actually fairly reasonable. Yeah. It's not being like eye in the sky dreamy about it. It's giving people the idea to work with. And then from there, you can take your current reality and slowly work <laughs> towards making that your reality. In my example, I could um, quit my job and go podcasting full time. Um, that probably wouldn't be a smart thing to do from the outset. But there's nothing to say that I can't do that on the side and slowly as, as it grows, make that a full-time reality. But I think people manage to convince themselves that, as you say, the moment you start saying your dreams, it's like, yeah, I would do that, but yeah. I've got to pay the bills or I've got to do, do this or... Yeah, you, you know, you're absolutely right. And But you just said a moment ago is 
like to be the world sports player, player or whatever, but that ship has sailed. See, is that a myth? Now, the reality is, of course, you know, we know that it is for professional tennis or whatever it might be. You know, realistic, I say real, you know, there's within the limits of one's own physical health. And if you're competing with a 20 year old who, you know, because of that, just that time in life and, and that little window when we know there's ex- accelerated sort of progress potentially but it doesn't mean if that's really what if you had a magic wand you would do it okay that was really something somebody wanted to do how can I bring that tennis into my life I may not be on the circuit doing all this stuff but maybe I can coach people maybe I can write a book about it maybe I can go and teach in a kid's school part-time teaching tennis whatever your love is and you could start doing this now whatever people's thing is you know, if they want to work in an animal sanctuary is you don't have to wait till you're free to do it. Go and volunteer once a month and go and do it. Whatever it is, start doing it because it was a German writer called Goethe. I think he said boldness has power. You know, when we go out there and start doing it, it's almost as if, I don't know, energetically, the law of attraction or whatever opportunities rush to us. or we see those opportunities that we didn't see before. Start with a really big vision. You know, with that vision, we could have world peace. And who was it who said, give me a big enough lever and I would shift the world? It was like Atlas or something. He wanted to you know, move the, the planet sort of thing. A lot of people say, oh, if, if I won the lottery, I'd do so and so. I very rarely say if, I say when. <laughs> you know, when people say, oh, if my podcast is successful, when my podcast is successful. You know, and people go, yeah, but it kind of... There's that self-talk. So self-talk is a really big thing of this. Learn your own self-talk. What is it? The, the excuses, oh, I haven't got enough time, not enough money. I'm not young enough. I'm not rich enough. These actually, a lot of them are all excuses because within reason, if someone else has done it before, we can do it. And often people use other people's money, actually. <laughs> You've got to have what I call the stacking shelves job is keep doing what you do till you can make that leap. If we move too quickly or we start our own business too quickly, we've got to make money within a certain time, we stop being creative. Whereas if we could start to invest in those changes and do things, we can start to see the opportunities, you know, develop that while we still not have to worry about paying the mortgage or the rent. And I think that's important. Yeah. It's interesting um, talking to different guests from completely different backgrounds and how some of the same sort of themes come through. One of the things you said earlier was something along the lines of if you start doing something, opportunities will present themselves. I've had different guests say very similar things. And I've also heard read in a book which um, says uh, people misunderstand motivation. They think that you need motivation to be able to do something. But in reality, by making an action gives you the inspiration and the motivation. So just by doing something will likely create the opportunity to you know, the person that goes to the um, sanctuary and starts volunteering one day a week, they might actually have a part-time job that is going and next thing they're doing that two days a week and they're getting paid for it. Yeah. And then a year down the line, they've got a full-time job and they're so impressed with this person that they end up getting a full-time job at the sanctuary. Yes, that's right. But whereas the person who, who said, oh, I don't know if I have time to, to volunteer one day a week, I've got to really like earn, earn a living. They're just making an excuse because the reality is, is that especially in the 21st century, most people could probably do a job two or three days a week and earn enough money to survive, at least in the short term. Yeah, sure, you might not be able to go for your overseas holiday and buy your flash clothes for a year, but if you're serious about making a change, it is possible to 
just do it part-time, I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think it's also look at your life and actually see, do a sort of income and outcome, go outgoings. And actually a lot of people fritter a lot of money that could be invested in their training and development by investing in books and online programs and retrainings. You know, but they say, oh, I haven't got the money. Gosh, it all goes. When we actually break it down and we realize there was actually a speaker in the UK, I remember once called the, he called it the latte factor. Now, we all like going out for coffee, or most people do. And it's great <laughs> when it's a treat. But if people keep doing it where they're just constantly giving a fix and they're having three a day, $3 each. So they're spending $10 a day, $50 a week, you know, $200 a, a month. Um, 2000 a year it soon adds up well 2000 you can really do something with that and that's just your coffee and it's starting to I mean I'm quite a minimalist and I like very much experiences you know because that's what we remember at the end of our life not that we had the only bespoke nine slice Danish toaster in the world you know because everyone was meant to have that <laughs> you know, who cares we actually think about oh do you know that time I went to New Zealand and I went and climbed Mount Cook or Actually, someone said something to me the other day. I don't know what you think about this, Steve. They said their mother gave them some really good advice. It was a guy in his 50s. He said, this is a myth, though, I would like to say, is you travel when you're young, you sightsee when you're older. And I thought for the majority of people, that probably is true because they're worried about their reputation. They don't want to get blindingly drunk and out three in the morning in Ibiza, <laughs> you know, but why not? Who's looking really? But we've, oh, I want my reputation. I'm a lawyer. Oh gosh, I might get struck off, or, <laughs> you know, but actually it, another thing is a myth. We've got to get this, have your fun out the way before you have children. But why have children if you don't make fun of it? Funny thing is um, I actually did a trip with some mates three years ago. Mm -hmm. We did what's called the rickshaw run. So we took tuk-tuks. And we painted them in Kiwi colours and we travelled 3,000 k's over the space of a couple of weeks. Wow. And bearing in mind that the tuk-tuk went about 30 k's an hour, so it was a lot of driving. So most of the people that were on the trip were um, genuinely under 30. But we actually bumped into, um, there was an, an older guy, probably late 50s with his 18-year-old son who was there. Mm -hmm. And we also bumped into a older group that were doing their own thing, but... There's no reason to say that you have to go and stay in a flash hotel. That's right. Yeah. And is it better when you've stayed in some sort of place and you get to know the people that live there? Think of the when you've been traveling or whatever and you were sitting in the lounge somewhere and you bumped into other people at the, you know, backpackers or something or, you know, in the pub or something. We're very isolated when we go and stay in hotels and we just keep to ourselves, whereas you tend to chat with other people. And that's the stories that we remember. You remember all the stories of the tuk-tuk. I think that's great. It's, I mean, I do know tuk-tuks. This was in Thailand, was it? Or where was this? No, this was India. India, of course. That's right. So you've yeah. normally you've got a driver, haven't you? But you actually drove them yourself. Yes. And it gave us a real appreciation of what it was like to be a local because we ended up doing a... Um, a trip where we did have a driver after the rickshaw run yeah and it felt so much safer on the road being in an enclosed vehicle yes um, with proper suspension and stuff but um on the tuk tuk gave gave us a true appreciation of what it was like to be a local that's right absolutely and when we travel you are more like the locals i mean i've had the I, this is another thing about you know the law of attraction what we give out is what we get back for instance, if we believe we're going to be rich and successful, you know, if we take some steps towards it, we will be it. But if we believe we're always going to be poor, that's what we're going to do. And it, it's actually in every philosophy, every religious teaching, every 
personal development program, really. And it seems to be that why is it that two people from a poor background with an abusive father, one will go on to be successful and, and rich and the other person will keep having problems? And it's often what people believe they're capable of. You know, we have to make our own luck in many ways. Obviously, there's often opportunity or whatever. But, you know, I've gone to motivational talks and the guy that comes from like Puerto Rico, he was a street kid. And I remember seeing him at a speaker's talk once and um, he came to America and he actually was an illegal immigrant back then. It was probably 40 years ago. And he was locked under the truck that was going across to America. He just wanted to escape over there. Of course, he couldn't legally work, but he got a job, I think, at a fast food joint looking after the outside area, cleaning it. And he thought, I'm in America. If I can't make it here and I lived on the street in Puerto Rico or whatever, I'm going to make this work. So he decided he was going to be the best cleaner going. And he was going to be waiting the tables, even though he was a cleaner. And he took great pride in this outside area, this fast food thing where people just threw their junk out there. And of course, he was recognized. And then he got an opportunity to work inside. Then he just worked up the ranks. And he started to realize is that if we do every job and every action is if it's absolutely our choice and we give it our best, we've got a much better opportunity. We're demonstrating to other people that might take a risk in us or, you know, invest in us or offer us something. But if we say, oh, yeah, I'll really show up when I do what I really love, people are going to go, well, if you can't do it with the small stuff, how are you going to do it with the big stuff? So I think it's very important to act as if, act as if, talk as if you're already successful, talk as but another little tip for people is ask yourself, what is success? I heard a, a wonderful definition by the late Earl Nightingale. He said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. The progressive realization, something we are doing every day, moving towards, whether it's stacking our shelves, we are moving towards because we're dreaming about our dream. That's moving towards progression of a worthy ideal we've all got to decide what our worthy ideal is i'm sure that you know you doing the podcast something you obviously love and it's you know you know you're making an influence and change for people i bet you talk about that with your wife over coffee i bet you're talking about it all the time <laughs> is what people <laughs> do are they meaningful lives yeah this really interesting person you talk to the very thing that you do like falling off a log is what we really love doing and, you know, if we can turn that into something that gives us an income, so therefore we can we don't have to spend our time doing other things to get the income to do this in the long term, the better. So so work out what your worthy ideal is and then say, how can I move towards that? What is the worthy ideal? What is it you want from that? Well, I want to feel I have wasted my life. I want to feel, you know, that I've done the best. I didn't let myself down. I want to contribute to other kids knowing that they can be successful too whatever it is but if we don't know where we're going we end up somewhere else so work out what the where the ideal is and then I always say you're moving forward or you're moving back okay let's just take a really simple thing say somebody chooses to go on a diet even though if the word diet is die with a t <laughs> it's, um, you know it's but say they are and they've followed some sort of regime and on day two, they pick up a bag of donuts and they start eating and they go, oh, I've broken the diet. 
you know, what do most people say, Steve? They want to get back on the diet. What do they say? A lot of people go, oh, I'll start again tomorrow. I might as well go crazy now. And they open the six pack. <laughs> or it's ruined. They it's might have actually ruined. been good for three weeks and they were planning on doing it for six months. That's but right. because they've oh. had one treat and, and stuffed up once, oh, it's over. And then they just keep stuffing themselves. <laughs> they, but actually, they keep eating the donuts. They don't even want the donuts. They had two and a half and they feel sick. But they because it's linked to freedom and, and not being restrained, oh, what the heck? And so now they've eaten 50,000 more calories. And when they start the diet tomorrow, they wake up, you know, all sugared up and whatever. The moment that we are back on track, and I just use the diet as an example, is it's the moment you stop eating. <laughs> if you think about it, yeah. are you putting something in your mouth? So that when they take a bite of the donut and they go, I don't want the rest, they are back on track because whatever way they do it, they're not breaking it and I think we wait till tomorrow we wait till the job we wait till the weekend before we can enjoy ourselves and it's a myth really because we've only got now we're either moving forward or moving back so you decide you want to be healthy and well so let me give you an example not to show off but I've done yoga for 40 years do I go to classes of an hour an hour and a half definitely not occasionally to make sure I'm back on but I decided all that time ago, I took some great inspiration about a short time term course I did when I was very young. And the woman said, it's best to do a little bit every day than say you're going to do it on the 1st of January, never get around to it. And so I decided, what could I do? I could do five to 10 minutes, three or four times a week. So I made a rule. I'm going to do yoga five to 10 minutes, three or four times a week or more. And it's become such a habit that if I go a few days and I'm not, my back starts to ache. But it's only five or ten minutes, and I've got a nice routine. I do it at home. Now, how many weeks, months, years have I done yoga in total? But I only do five to ten minutes. Whereas if I had to wait to get in the car, drive there, pay, do the course, don't feel like it today. And I think it's like that. What can we progressively do? Are we moving forward or are we moving back? And whatever your dream is, is for the listeners of this, the fact that you're even listening to the podcast means you're moving forward. You're asking a question. You've got here, not by chance. It's because something is not working in your life. And dispel the myth that you can't change. Okay. It may be difficult to just bail out of your job right now, and it would be irresponsible, potentially. You know, and it would reduce your choices or your poor children would be out on their ear. But work towards not if I get rich, if I get the inheritance from my family, you know, what can I do now to move in the direction of my dream? What am I prepared to give up to get my dream? Do we need the second car? Do we need the really big house? Maybe we can downsize. I wanted to share this quote from Robert F. Kennedy about materialism, which I think is relevant to this week's episode. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year, but that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising, and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts Whitman's rifle and Speck's knife, and the TV programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile.
I just want to go quickly back to the yoga comment and the, you know, three, four times a week, five to 10 minutes. It's very similar to a book I read called Tiny Habits. The premise of the book is that to create a habit that you want in your life, rather than measuring it on, say, I'm going to go to yoga for an hour, five times a week, and you end up not achieving it. You make the habit something really tiny. And the example I can think of in the book is... He says that every workday I'm going to go for a run um, after work. And so what he does is he leaves his shoes by the door. And when he comes home from work, he puts his shoes and socks on. And his habit isn't going for the run every day. His habit is putting the shoes and socks on. And 90% of the time from there, he will go for a run. Sometimes he might just go for a walk because he's really tired. And there might be a one in 10 times that he puts his shoes on and he decides, you know what? It's pouring with rain outside, I'm exhausted, I'm not going to go for a run. But he's created a tiny and achievable habit that he just will keep doing because he's actually putting on, all he has to do is put on his shoes. If you make your goal the simple, tiny thing as opposed to this big, more complicated thing like going for an hour run or an hour of yoga or whatever it is, it makes it less achievable and then less likely that you're actually going to continue to do the habit. I like that very much. I I think you're absolutely right because it also links into what we know about neuroscience and it's neural memory. If we look at habit, it's memory of the body. I always use the example of, you know, do you clean your teeth at night? Most people do. That's one of the examples that he actually gives in the book is the the teeth. And another one he gives as an example is turning the kettle on in the morning. I I think when I get up in the morning, I'm not even thinking and I just walk into the kitchen and click the kettle on and I'm barely even conscious when I do that. He suggests actually linking a habit to something simple like that. So, you know, if you really need to do, in my case at the moment, I'm having some problems with my upper back. And so the physio is giving me some stretches to do. If every morning when I click the kettle on, that's my sort of reminder to do my five minutes of upper back stretches. It's something achievable that you'll remember to do. I think that's it, isn't it? It's your body. We don't remind ourselves about cleaning teeth. We don't set alarms, but it feels weird if we don't do it. So we might even get out of bed and clean our teeth. They're not going to fall out. I always say to people, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you think of? And people go, I reach my phone, usually. <laughs> that is something that must stop. Do not be drawn into yeah, the dumping ground of other people's this. stuff. <laughs> is d- develop a daily mantra. Now, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that comes into my head, because it's become a habit, does it take 10 days to develop a habit, 30 days? You know, who knows? Psychologists do say yeah. that on average, it's 30 days. If we have a particularly difficult experience or a very emotional, pleasurable one, it can be much quicker. But on the whole, we have to keep doing something until it becomes automatic. As children, we have to be reminded to clean our teeth, for instance. Then it becomes the habit. I have a habit that until I change it to something else, I cannot undo this because it is such a habit. So I wake up, I come into awareness. And the first thing that comes into my mind is what a grand and glorious day filled with love, opportunity and potential because I taught myself to do it. And then somewhere in the house, there'll be a dog tapping their tail. Oh, my God, she's up. She's up, which reinforces it. I say to people, write it down. The three P's, the personal, the present tense and the positive, you know, not sort of. I will lose weight in the future. That's future. It's negative. It makes bold statements. I am. I am successful, enjoying life, healthy and fit, whatever it is. Choose something that works for you and write it down. Keep repeating it every morning. And when you forget, start for another 30 days. The idea also of the 30 days is that 
in the end, you're not counting days because you just do it. Now, when I wake up like that, and sometimes I have to get up very early and go into Sydney in the city, I am immediately propelled into empowerment. What grand and glorious effort would love opportunity and potential. Like, yeah, I don't want to get out. It's all warm. It's a bit cold outside. But that changes things. Whereas if a lot of people are, oh, God, I don't want to get up. I don't want to go to work. You know, and you're not even getting paid to feel like that. You know, you're getting your, your work before you know it. Change the script. So develop a daily mantra. That's going to be really important. I just want to make a couple of comments there, Claire. One is that from the Tiny Habits book, that is something he suggests as well. Not that those exact words, but he suggests when you get up in the morning, have something positive to, to say. And I can't remember the details. You'd have to read the book yourself. But the other thing that I want to say um, from people that are a bit more cynical, and I was one of those people, is I used to hear the positive mentality stuff and kind of roll my eyes and think this is a bit sort of wishy-washy and yeah sure say positive things but the reality is is that you know I might have a crap day at work that doesn't mean to say that you need to be positive 100% of the time and it is okay to feel crap when you've had a bad day but there's something about slowly over time or as quickly as possible changing your mindset to be positive yeah. and one of the things that I noticed from doing some life coaching myself is that you know, you were talking about the shoulds and the buts and the, oh, you know, I can't do this sort of thing. Mm. One of the things I used to do is just subtly put myself down. And it was only when I started writing it down that I started to notice the pattern. And now it's very rare for me to put myself down because I'm so conscious of it. So, you know, I'd be doing something at work and if something wouldn't go well, I'd be like, oh, sort of mutter under my breath, oh, you know, you're doing a crap job or something like that. Until you become aware of these things that you're doing, you don't realize how much it's affecting your um, your mindset. And I know it's a little bit different to, to what you were saying with the, the, the mantra in the morning, but having experienced that to a certain degree, I don't do a mantra or anything in the morning, but I do genuinely believe that that's got to make a, a difference in your life. Because if you're getting up in the morning and I mean, how many people do we know that get up in the morning and is like, oh, I've got to go to work today or. Yeah. And that's such a, sh what a waste of creativity and we can change that. You know, there's always a price to be paid. You know, in the short term, you probably can't have the four bedroom house and the two cars if that's what you want. You know, but are you having that because you truly want it or is it because that's where you think you should be in life? Do you know, I remember I, I originally come from England and I remember it was one of those times when my mouth dropped and there was a guy that came to see me about something. It was some training initiative and he was really burnt out and tired and this job was too much for him and I said you know how come you you haven't even got children you know it's like you, you haven't got a lot of financial outgoings that, that's not even your excuse here and he said yeah but I've got this massive mortgage I said well what have you got a massive mortgage for he said oh, I live in a five-bedroomed house two bathrooms I said what you and your wife he said yeah I said what for he said well at that stage in my life that's where I think I should be <laughs> <laughs> And I said, and what's the cost you're paying for this? Because guess what? Nobody cares. <laughs> they worry about their, what they're doing. <laughs> and I think once we get over that is most people aren't looking. Aren't, they're worried about their own lives. People are afraid. Yeah, but if I do it, you know, everyone else is doing this. So I go along with something is when we stand out, and we make a thing. Often it gives other people permission to shine and actually go, well, if he can do it, if Steve can do it, I can do it. So I'm just going to borrow a quote from Dr. Zeus. Be who you are and say what you feel, because those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind.
Yeah, I mean, all my good friends wouldn't care what the state of the house is that I lived in or my job. It's it's the people that aren't really your good friends are the ones that judge you. That's right, yeah. I, I, somebody asked me that recently. I've got an old 20-year-old car, which is an old Land Cruiser. And it's great. You could go across the outback in Australia on it. People stop me and say, can I buy it? And I remember someone coming up to me and say, so you didn't win the lottery then? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, I could probably afford a Lexus if I really wanted it. But guess what? I don't. Don't have to worry, but people are not scratching it. Cars aren't that important to me. This never breaks down and it's big and um, it's old and, and she kind of doesn't give a damn when she's driving. So they, people stay away. But if I was in a Lexus, I'd be afraid people are going to upset. But it doesn't mean people shouldn't have nice cars, but have the nice car because you want it, not because you. Yeah, exactly. That's if that's your thing. That's right. So I used to be a large animal vet and I remember meeting this farmer. So I was actually with another vet and the uh, guy turned up and he was in pretty rugged clothes and he turned up to his old dairy shed and we had a chat and stuff. And, and then afterwards, as we were driving away from the farm, the uh, senior vet said to me, he said, you know, that guy is the owner of this real estate company and he's probably worth tens of millions of dollars. You know, that, that saying the rich man doesn't have to show you he's rich. That's it's kind right. of true. I think that's absolutely, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's like Richard Branson, you know, he's there, hasn't got the flashiest clothes on, you know, I'm sure he could, but it kind of doesn't matter. And that keeping up with the Joneses that used to be called, but there's a cost to do that. Are we doing jobs that we don't want to do because we feel we should have that to impress people we don't actually even care about? You know, it's amazing our psychology, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And but we're social creatures. I one doubt about it, isn't it? We, we are. We want to be accepted. We want to be, but be accepted by the people that really value you for who you are, not because of what you can afford or what club you you know belong to. Or there's a lovely book actually called Lost Connections. And it's actually about the real roots of depression. And there was always the view that it was due to reduced serotonin, the happy hormone and whatever. And then they found as they put people antidepressants, it was fine for a while. Then it sort of wore off and whatever. But when you really look at the research that's been done in the last 20 years, you know, it's about lost connections, lost connection to meaningful work, lost connection to people that you care about, to financial security. So you're worried whether, you know, you can actually put a roof over your head. And it's all these lost connections you know, these are the things that we can't buy. And if we give that away because we think we should or to must be doing something else, we are, as we've started off the talk, is we're adhering to myths, but we are denying that we have choice and we can't see where it's available. It's uh, fascinating, Claire. And I, yeah, I really appreciated your inputs. I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of good stuff to take home. Mm -hmm. Just before you go, a couple of things. One is where can we find out more about um, you and what you do? Sure, absolutely. Well, there's many websites I've got, but the two most poignant here, I think, is my, my general one to find my other websites, which is claireman.com, which is C-L-A-R-E-M-A-N-N.com. And then The Myths of Choice is a book that is in audio and in digital form. And in book. it has 50 exercises for you to go through where you deny you have choice, you don't have it. But also that chapter on if you really think how you're going to change your life and it takes you through about 16 steps you know get some big sheets of paper and really plan how you're going to do this and what you're going to give up so that is lifemyths.com lifemyths.com just a, a quick question regarding the book how did you um, motivate yourself to write a book in the first place I always had this interest in this existential philosophy and the notion of choice it was when I emigrated to Australia 
And there's a great myth. Here's one. I was well established in the UK. You know, I was teaching in a university. Actually, I was teaching occupational psychology. And I had my local community, my friends, and I had, um, had a mortgage on my flat. And life was great. And then I met somebody from New Zealand, <laughs> <laughs> London, and uh, fell in love with him. And uh, that sort of funny thing. And I had to make a decision within the three months we were together. Then he came back and I had a trip there. I had to make a decision to come to Australia or he to go there. Decided to come. When, to when was this, Claire? It was about 20 years ago now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was, you know, oh, my gosh, I'm at the pinnacle of my career. That was really, oh, my God, well, I thought it was, you know, but I had this great <laughs> teaching job. And I was working in open learning, so I was even going abroad to trips to teach overseas students, all paid. It was great. See the world, get paid. But then I thought, I've got a way up. There's something. Do I really want to be here? They've met this great person. You know, is, we just got on a house on fire. And, and so I made that change. But in making that change, I came to a country I didn't know anyone. I didn't have a work permit. How was I going to meet people? I didn't have any income other than letting out my flat in London. And oh, absolute anxiety happened. But um, I needed a project. And so I threw myself into writing a book I'd always wanted to write about the myth of who we are. It started off by looking at that. So I wrote, a, sort of started writing around that out of area. And then through my work in communication and challenging myths and challenging narratives we have in our society, I um, rewrote it and, uh, and it came out a couple of years back. I had a myth that actually... If I, it was safe to stay where I was. It was rewarding, but I could have still been there. I'd have a very nice pension now, I'm sure. I wouldn't be retired, but, you know, I would have been working towards it. But actually, you know, I've now lived in New Zealand. I've lived in Australia. My partner is my best friend. You know, we redeveloped what we're doing and we work together. And what do I remember? You know, I remember staying safe in a job for 40 years, you know, or did I take that risk? And the end of the day, what do we remember, Steve? We remember relationships. We remember the mate that was with us, talked to us at three in the morning because we had a problem. We don't remember how much money we had and that Danish toaster. <laughs> that was organisational psychologist Claire Mann. I found the conversation with Claire particularly relevant to escape the nine to five because so many people are doing things because they think they should be doing them, not because they actually want to. I grew up in a relatively conservative South African family we were always told you must do this or you should do that without any real explanation of why. We're told we should go to university or we should travel while we're young without looking at the goals of the individual person. I was told I must go to university and I did. It was beneficial for me but it is not necessarily suitable for everyone. I was also told to go on a gap year after school to the UK. I did. In hindsight, I was too immature and this was a complete waste of a year for me. This doesn't mean to say it isn't the right thing for another 18-year-old. Do what makes you happy. You've got to follow your gut. Simon Sinek, author of Start With Why, became famous for his TED Talk where he explained people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Based on the way our brain works, the way we feel about something is more important than what we think about it that when given the choice, we follow our gut. Cynic says in another talk, what I'm interested in is what gets people up every single day to do something. Maybe pay a premium, maybe suffer inconvenience, maybe sacrifice because they're driven by something else. What is that thing? What I've learned is it's that question, why? It drives us, it inspires us. So three tips from Claire for this week. 
One, what would you do right now if you knew you could not fail? The answer to this will probably give you a clue what you're meant to be doing. Two, figure out what your own self-talk is. What are the excuses you tell yourself when you say you can't do something? I think one of the most common ones is, I'm just too busy, and yet, how many of us still manage to find time to scroll our phones, watch a show on Netflix, and generally just flip about? And her final tip, find something you really want to do and introduce it into your life, even if it's just on the side to begin with. This week's challenge, do what makes you happy. Challenge accepted. Grab a big sheet of paper and write down exactly how you're spending your 168 hours per week. Cross out all the things you do only because you think you should, or someone else has told you you should. Replace these with things you actually want to do, including allowing time daily for at least 30 minutes of exercise and at least 15 minutes of meditation. I guarantee this will not only make you feel happier, but help with the decision-making process down the road, when you've got a healthier and clearer mind. Challenge accepted. I do ask you to be reasonable about this week's challenge. I absolutely hate doing grocery shopping, but do need to eat. I also love having a few drinks, but I'm not going to make that a daily habit because not everything that makes you happy in the short term is good for you in the long term. Thanks for listening to Escape the 9 to 5. If you need help on your own career journey, be sure to join our Facebook group escape the nine to five podcast where you'll join a community of people with a similar mindset actually wanting to make the most of their lives and not be trapped in a meaningless job for the rest of their lives this week we're talking about myths we tell ourselves we should do and how to focus on spending more time doing things that actually drive us and inspire us the link to the group is in the show notes escape the nine to five is a deals media production If you felt like this episode brought you any value at all and helped you on your journey to escaping the 9 to 5, please do give us a rating if you're on Apple or Spotify podcasts. Otherwise, make sure you subscribe on whatever app you're listening on. This show is produced and created by me, Steve O'Ealy. Editing is thanks to Jeremy Grater. And show music is thanks to Mikey Geiger. For more information and support, please visit our Facebook page, Escape the 9 to 5 Podcast. Links to this are in the show notes. See you next time on Escape the 9 to 5.